really what we're trying to get at here is a a bringing forth of the of the concept that there are power imbalances existing in our relationships all the time uh, between landlord and tenant, between uh, employer and employee. And the goal, I think, of the left uh, should be to bring those contradictions into focus so that people understand how their lives are structured, why they're structured the way that they are structured, and then what to do about that structure if they think it's unjust. And I think that most people will probably say, yeah, you know what? My boss doesn't have any right to have this kind of power over me that, that he does. Uh, my landlord doesn't have the right to have this kind of authority over my life that he does. And once you've done that, you've already started winning the battle. You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and corporate media. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with fifth-year MMT activist Ryan Mathis, who is a first-year law student at the University of Austin, Texas. At 23 years old, he is one of the younger members of the millennial generation. This is a special two-part episode, with part one being released on the podcast Historically, and part two on my own activist MMT. Ryan and I first talk about the now global coronavirus pandemic. We discuss how the four-decade age of neoliberalism, with its extreme greed and obscene inequality, is making the challenge of dealing with this health crisis much more difficult for individuals. For example, the deliberate dismantling of large swaths of the American manufacturing sector over the past 40 years was largely a successful effort to decimate unions. Because of this, the United States is now dependent on a substantially reduced domestic manufacturing sector in order to produce critically needed items during this health crisis, such as personal protection equipment and ventilators. This, along with the slashing of federal agencies by the Trump administration and the almost complete lack of preparation by previous administrations, could result in tens of thousands of gratuitous deaths or more among disadvantaged populations. Because of this crisis, Ryan's university has abandoned in-person instruction as of Friday, March 13th. My own Burlington County in New Jersey has closed all schools for a month, not to open again until at least April 20th. Since my wife and I both work in two different schools and my two little boys attend two others, I am greatly relieved. And as I record this introduction on March 28th, with the number of confirmed infected in New York and New Jersey now at nearly 50,000 and increasing exponentially, this date is very likely to be extended by several months. Then, in the heart of our conversation, Ryan lays out his plan of what must happen in order to fix and replace our corrupt government, media, and educational institutions. In his estimation, it is becoming increasingly clear that the electoral process in the United States is a profoundly unfair one. Bourgeois liberal parties are becoming increasingly hostile towards both the social democratic agenda they pretend to champion and to those desperate for that agenda to be enacted. Further, watching presidential candidate Joe Biden profusely lie during the March 15th Democratic debate and not once being challenged by its corporate media moderators, ostensibly journalists whose supposed job is to transmit truth to their audience, it is obvious that legacy media has no intention of functioning as fair arbiters. In other words, it is clear that the system as it exists today will do everything it can to prevent those who even modestly want to reign in corporate power from ever achieving office. In this context, 
even a comparative moderate such as Bernie Sanders is torn down and smeared as a radical extremist. Given this reality, it is a fool's errand to attempt to enact change exclusively through electoral politics. Ryan says we must urgently create new institutions at a local level that are friendly to the left-wing project. This begins with rebuilding trade unions and creating alternative media projects such as Means TV, Historically, and my own Citizens Media TV and Activist MMT. It will require playing the long game, designing and building these institutions from the ground up. Simultaneously, we can use our existing electoral politics to elect progressives at all levels of government, from the most local positions all the way to federal. With the election of the squad of freshman congresswomen led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, progressives truly have at least a foot in the door of the halls of power. In part two, Ryan and I transition to modern monetary theory, or MMT. First, we discuss the relationship between MMT and Marxism from our viewpoints as two laypeople learning the subject as we go. In particular, we compare Marx's formulation of the labor theory of value to Chartalism's state theory of money, the latter of which has been adopted by MMT. The fundamental value of money is explained well by MMT and Chartalism's assertion that taxes drive money. MMT further describes money as a legal institution or charter, which is a tool used by the state to control socioeconomic activity. On the other hand, the labor theory of value describes how human labor imparts financial value onto the real goods and services it produces, which are then bought and sold. In other words, the two concepts, the state theory of money and the labor theory of value, are in fact largely complementary. Finally, Ryan and I end with an in-depth, if not complete, discussion of the so-called natural economic laws that govern our society, centering around the concept of land ownership. As our current health crisis has revealed, the laws, rules, and social mores that were rigid and incontrovertible only weeks ago are suddenly being cast aside at high speed by those in power in order to stave off its worst consequences. This is especially true of the how are you going to pay for it question which is being ignored for unprecedented spending by both Congress and the Federal Reserve. We the people should also take advantage of this situation in order to do what we feel is best for our society. What's up, Ryan? Hey, it's good to hear from you. Yeah, you too, you too. So uh, uh, you and I talked on my podcast, which is Activist MMT, MMT episodes right, three right. and four. Uh, so we're going to be, this is going to be for uh, Historically, uh, okay, which is cool. Isha's podcast. Uh, so, yeah, sure. Yeah, so, you know, just briefly introduce yourself and then just let's get into it. I guess we should probably touch on uh, coronavirus first and then uh, let's get into um, talking about, you know, what what really needs to happen. Yeah, um, so just to give a little bit of background about me, um, I'm uh, finishing up my first year at the University of Texas uh, School of Law. Um, I'm, uh, I've been interested in modern monetary theory for about five years now, I would say, after discovering it um, as an undergrad and kind of uh, sort of continuing to research and um, try to understand uh, on my own time. It's not something that I've ever really been ex uh, exposed to formally in school. Um, but I think I've become a, a, basically an amateur expert hybrid <laughs> um, <laughs> over the last uh, half decade or so. Um, and yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, kind of who I am, how I came to MMT. And uh, I met you, Jeff, uh, for, our, for our listeners back in September of 2019 at the uh, the MMT conference in person uh, we we had been speaking for quite a while online but yeah, yeah right. in person yeah um 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you for coming on. Um, I've been, you know, we've been witnessing each other um, stressing over this election um, mm -hmm. and you, you have some pretty strong opinions of what needs to happen. And it relates to a conversation that, that Isha and I just had, which was just right. released on historically about basically the first act of revolution is love. That's basically mm -hmm. what I'm titling it. Um, uh, you know, some pretty big things need to change. But before before we get into that, though, um, you just shared something pretty important about coronavirus. So mm -hmm. I, I don't want to go too into that. I want to be able to I want to be able to dive more into to the Bernie subject. Um, but I mean, we got to say something. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, yeah. From what I understand, out of uh, I guess Italy is the kind of the big. Um, situation right now in the world regarding coronavirus where there are not enough um essentially they're running out of medical supplies including human labor both doctors and nurses as well to treat everyone who uh has severe symptoms um and so they're very they're moving very quickly towards having to have a rationing regime uh called catastrophe me catastrophe medicine which is exactly what it sounds like it is where you imagine you're on the battlefield right in world war ii and uh two people get shot one guy's shot and his um you know sort of internal organs maybe the stomach or something and then another person's shot in the leg and you only have one medic well you let the guy who's shot in the stomach die because it's easier to save the one who's shot in the leg that is the situation that exists or is about to exist very close in Italy, where people who are older and sicker and have a worse probability of, of recovery are essentially going to have to be turned away and, uh, as horrible as it sounds, let die uh, because there's just there are not enough resources going around to treat everyone and the hospitals are going to have to pick and choose who to treat and they're going to pick younger and relatively less sick people to save because their chances of survival are just better. Uh, and so the situation is really, really dire in Italy right now. And, uh, you know, this country could move towards something that looks a lot like that if we don't begin doing the kind of quarantines and, um, uh, the the sort of epidemiologists call it social distancing, uh, and, and that basically implies um, closing down public spaces, uh, which I think we've today we really witnessed the big the first big wave of big institutions shutting things down. So, for example, the NCAA, uh, all of the rest of the basketball games for the rest of the season are going to be played in front of fanless crowds there'll be nobody in the crowds uh wow that's the first i'm hearing that right that that was a i got that on my espn notifications today and so those kinds of things are beginning now in this country in earnest which i think is the, the correct decision i mean the the goal here is to reduce um you know potential for spread uh and so when you start doing things like that like uh, my law school for example is i think very likely going to switch to remote classes following spring break. Hmm. Uh, and a bunch of other law schools have already done that. Harvard has done that. Yale has done that. Um, That's the middle of next month? No, actually, that is starting this Friday. Uh, I don't think that oh, we're wow. going to have any... Wow. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we're going to have any more classes after this Friday through the rest of wow. the semester. Um, we might. I kind of doubt it. You know, the, one of the biggest concerns on the on sort of the school's front is faculty. I mean, think of the, your average law professor. It's not exactly a, a, a sprightly young guy. Um, we're talking about mm. people in their 70s and 80s uh, who are still working, who are kind of the most vulnerable population. And so wow. that kind of thing is beginning to happen. And I think it's exactly the right thing to do. Huh? Yeah, my wife uh, just had a, a meeting with her school two days ago, I believe, mm -hmm. and she's a second grade teacher. Uh, I work in a middle school, and I have two little boys in two different schools in the district. Yeah, right. Um, and she just had a meeting, faculty meeting, where they said, uh, oh, uh, "Our governor, Governor Murphy in New Jersey, declared mm -hmm. a state of emergency it's precautionarily. There's nothing sure. really going on yet." Um, right. 
but uh, my wife was told that it is not when it is not if it is when schools. Yeah, I think that's and, kind and of I the think, understanding. I think it has to be, and I think it has to be at least a month. I mean, I think at least with with a five dot five day, uh, uh-huh. potentially not knowing that you have the symptoms, um, it has to be at least a month. So you, what you just said is until the end of the semester, right? Uh, the semester would end normally uh, around mid-May, and I, I highly doubt that if we begin on a remote uh, class basis that we would be able to stop because with the exponential spread of the virus, it, it's only going to get worse um, for the foreseeable future, and there would be no sense in coming back to class after the situation is deteriorated from the time when you left class, you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Um, and we don't have Medicare for all. If we had Medicare for <laughs> right. all, then a lot of those resources would have already been at least on their way, mm-hmm. on their way to being ramped up at this point. Um, and right. now, because we have for-profit healthcare industry, now we're going to be relying on for-profit companies to save us because that is our healthcare industry. Yeah, and it's it's pretty absurd. Like uh my mom actually has been sick for maybe 10 days or so with flu-like oh, wow. symptoms and she uh-huh. went to the the that we have Kaiser is the is the insurance which is a sort of it's it's up in the Pacific Northwest area. Um it's through the my dad's employer. Uh and they wouldn't actually screen her when when she when she said when she told the people her symptoms, they said don't come. Because what? one, we don't have the screening capability right now, and two, we don't want you getting people sick. And so, think of the absurdity here. My mom is telling a healthcare provider, "I might have coronavirus, a, a literal global pandemic," and they're saying, "Well, we don't really want to see you." I mean, this is this is an absurdity. And so, you know, well, what's feeling- absurd is what's absurd is not necessarily that they don't want to see her, but that they're not capable of being able to handle her if she came in. That's what it seems like. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's basically exactly right. Um, she's doing much better now and, and it seems like she's, she's been in re- recovery for a number of days and she's feeling okay. But, um, you know, the thing is though, we don't know if she had coronavirus. It's possible. And, you know, some people have no symptoms at all with coronavirus. And so, the the sheer fact that we don't know we don't know who has it we don't know how many cases there are um, is definitely worrisome. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting over a sore throat myself. So, um, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I mean, I, I really didn't get I really didn't get it until that post from uh, a person in Italy that you shared, which is yeah, I don't shared. think I really did we, either. Really, and I keep reloading it. I keep reloading that post, and every time I reload uh-huh. it, it's shared like two thousand more times, and it's well, up to good, around. It was that's it was less it than a day. Be. Yeah, it's less than a day ago, and it's been shared at least a hundred and it's up to about one hundred and forty thousand times now. Um, yeah, right. I'll put that in the description as well. As I mean, it's going to be a couple weeks later, but. Um, Okay, so uh, any final thoughts about that before we go on to the? No, I actually thing? think I think that's a good uh, a good segue point. Um, I want to I want to bring up one other thing. Um, this comes this is not a this is not a Ryan Mathis idea. This comes from a a commentator who I like to read a lot and who has uh, sort of been tangentially involved with MMT for a little while. But there was a sort of a public spat between himself and Stephanie Kelton maybe a year ago. A guy named uh, Matthew Stoller, who writes fairly extensively oh. on supply chain issues. Yeah, yeah. Remember his his fight of with course. her. Of course. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that his ideas are are good uh, in general, and uh, particularly on this subject, are probably worth mentioning. You know, one of the big problems I think that we can perceive in the U.S. is the systemic outsourcing of manufacturing over the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, and, and that was not an accident. You know, that was de- deliberate policy decision. It was, it was not necessarily so much to increase corporate profit- profitability as it was to crush um, organized labor. Uh, although, of course, it did increase corporate profitability. That's, that's great. If that's your goal, that's the cherry on top, yeah, right. But it was more geared towards we want to obliterate the sector of the economy 
that is conducive to unionizing, which is, which is and always has been manufacturing. And so now in the context of coronavirus, we see that we have a systemic lack of ability to domestically source the very types of things that we need to fight this. So not it's not only just a Medicare for all thing, and of course that would go a long way in helping, but it's, it's that we literally don't have manufacturing capacity anymore in this country to produce wow. masks and ventilators and other of the, of the very necessi- necessary things, the type of things that Italy is running out of. Um, and so it, the whole situation is a, true, is a true absurdity, a reflection of the utter failure of the neoliberal consensus that we've had for 50 or so years. Um, and, and that's the last thing I want to say on, on that topic. Uh, okay, so uh, get into the election. Just uh, you know, uh, we—I'll I'll summarize briefly what happened. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bernie was doing amazing; he was shooting up like a rocket. And then Super Tuesday happened, and I—I I, I don't even really necessarily want to speculate on what happened because, I mean, everything is working against him, and he's yeah. not more than perfect. And maybe he made a mistake here and there, but it's like he's he's human and he did amazing and we've all done amazing and there's mm-hmm. i really don't see it much at all of that it's really his fault or it's our fault you know everything is working against us not to mention a whole lot of really questionable stuff is going on such as sure. exit polling just is not matching not matching real results way outside of the margin of error um a whole lot of different things like that so he lost very badly on Super Tuesday, but even so, they slow walked the results, which is part of the equation. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, again, uh, today's Wednesday. So last night, he, again, he lost Michigan. Again, right. exit polling, lots of really questionable stuff. I actually saw, and I'm not saying this is totally legitimate, but it's certainly worth investigating that there is, a, I saw a screenshot of results uh-huh. where between two different minutes, uh, like whatever, 10.25 took a screenshot uh-huh. of the results and then 10.27, another screenshot of the results. The amount of votes for Bernie Sanders went down by 300,000. Nobody else's <laughs> results changed. Wow. I, I didn't yeah. see that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, not to say that every single one of those details is correct, but every single one of these is against Bernie and for for Biden, for the other person. Right. If it's certainly worth mistakes, you would think that they would balance out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So at the very least, it just shows that there is really something going on. Something Mm -hmm. is going on, whether these specific details are the, you know, or what it is or not. So he is now, uh, struggling he is now definitely not the front runner and the guy whose brain is turning to oatmeal is now the front runner um so yeah so you know there's going to be an interesting debate on sunday which is you know very Uh well catered to biden's i'll say strengths um but it's going to be interesting (laughs) minimizing his weaknesses minimizing his weaknesses right no crowd which up until today i thought that there was at least part of it was you know, using coronavirus as a tool to hurt the progressive movement. Now he can't do, or at least they're certainly going to put a lot more pressure to not do big rallies anymore, which is a big part of his campaign. And I'm sure that's, I'm sure that that's part of it. Um, But, you know, now it's, you made the point, I don't remember exactly what you said, but you basically said electoral politics is just not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my takeaway i don't i don't know how you can have a, a different takeaway i mean we lost in 16 uh which which you could explain away as oh well bernie sanders's name recognition was essentially zero he had way less money and all those things and all those things are correct um and you know that's that was certainly a fine thesis in the in the 2016 and 2017 and 2018 and 2019 but now it's 2020 and we got kind of we got crushed again and this time, Bernie had virtually universal name recognition. I mean, maybe just a hair underneath Joe Biden's own name recognition, but pretty much he got everyone officially, in the country. officially crushed, officially crushed. Yeah, but going, I mean, yeah, 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 right. I mean, like all of those factors that could explain 16's uh, inability to beat Hillary, 
simply didn't exist anymore. Uh, Bernie had the most money. He had the most donations. He had the most volunteers. He had the he had universal name recognition. All those things, and we lost. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you gotta look at that and start asking yourself questions. Like, is it is it simply impossible for the left to win in electoral politics right now? And I think that you might conclude, well, no, it's not impossible because you could say maybe you maybe if you tweak the campaign this way, that way, and this way, maybe he wins. You know, and, and maybe that's right. But I think that at the very least, what we can say is that it's highly unlikely or very difficult for a leftist candidate, even one who is overwhelmingly popular, uh, who who is universally known who ran last time, uh, who, who, whose ideas command a majority support among not just Democrats, but the entire country. I mean, Republicans as well uh, support things like, um, I don't know the exact ones, but some of Bernie's ideas even have majority support among Republicans. Universal health Right. And, and so what I think you have to do is you have to build up institutions that can withstand uh, the test of time in the, in the sense that they don't just disappear after each electoral season. And so one of those, the, the obvious example is unions. Oh, hold so, on. Before, before, you, before yeah. you get into unions and your example, I just want to bring up one last thing regarding, you know, before yeah. we transition into this. And that is, and I want to get your opinion, that I, I in my opinion, I think Bernie, one of Bernie's biggest mistakes, one of his campaign's biggest mistakes, mm-hmm. is pretending that this process is fair. Yeah, I, he is I, I agree with that. Calling really out the exit polling, he is he not. That. He is not calling out the exit polling. He is not calling out how the media is slow walking his results and supercharging, you know, all the results that are against him. And and if and he has Warren Gunnels, he could be putting pumping yeah. out receipt after receipt after receipt of why this, why this, what's going on with this. I want an investigation to not necessarily make it, not necessarily to rectify those things, but to inform right. the people that this is not. A fair process, right? And that they it, should. We it does need not to resemble them. a democracy in any way of the, any any sense of the word. And he is acting as if it does. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too because Bernie ha- has a a long record of spanning many decades of of serious media critique. I mean, there's an entire album on on uh, Spotify that you can listen to um, underneath the artist Bernie Sanders, and one mm-hmm. of the the so-called songs, which is basically just a five-minute clip of a speech, is him uh, giving a very sophisticated uh, breakdown of what the corporate media is, what its function is, um, how it, it it influences public opinion in a way that Chomsky might describe as manufacturing consent. And mm-hmm. you know, now that he's running for president, all that critique is just gone. It's nowhere. Um, I, I think that the obvious explanation might be that he simply doesn't think he would have any chance at all winning a Democratic primary if he went out and was was basically taking the New York Times to task, which many liberals in this country sort of view as the the uh, voice of God himself. Um, you know, MSNBC they look they look at what Maddow says and they they interpret that as the un the unquestionable uh, truth. And so, possibly Bernie has made a calculated decision not to go after kind of the fundamental institutions. Um, but, but then again, the same could be said about the Democratic Party itself. And so that's counter evidence for my thesis. And so I don't have a good explanation of why he is silent on a topic that he has critiqued over and over his whole career at the most important stage. I don't, I don't have a good answer and, for it. And even at this stage when he is on his way to losing, he's right. still... Right, you have to throw a Hail Mary a and he won't. Right, right, right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so yes, yeah, so you were, you were talking about unions and, uh, you know, take it from there. Yeah. So to go back to my thesis, I, I think that what you have to do is build alternative places for, for regular people uh, to basically engage with politics. And by politics, I don't mean simply showing up every maybe two years at the most during the midterms or every four years during each presidential election, casting a ballot and then going home and not thinking about things and not having any participatory influence 
until the next four years comes around or next two years comes around. What I mean is building institutions that exist permanently or, or quasi-permanently, at least through and beyond each electoral cycle. And so to use my example to demonstrate what I'm talking about, in this country, that used to be unions. Unions served that purpose on the left. And they served as a way for people at work. That was sort of how they were structured. A lot of them were, um, you know, uh, company-wide, not necessarily um, sectorally uh, based like they are in a lot of the Scandinavian countries. You have sort of entire sectors have one union, Uh, you know, like the manufacturing sector will have one union. Whereas in this country, we had like the United Auto Workers and then... um, the, uh, we had the, we had the, yeah, yeah, tons of different ones, each sort of in a similar sector. Uh, huh. I won't really make an opinion on which one I think is better. I think maybe you, the stronger argument is probably the sector model. But regardless, unions, even though they were on this sort of smaller scale of a sort of company-wide thing, they still served as a place where working people could go and engage with each other in a democratic process of of sort of rulemaking, both within their own work uh, workplace, uh, of of negotiation, of participation, of kind of the fundamental ideas of of democratic processes, right? And and it was happening at a, a local scale, obviously at the at the corporate scale. Um, you know, the GM uh, auto workers who belong to you know uh, the UAW would talk about uh, the specific problems that were occurring in GM. But even on that scale, that's still much more democracy than what exists now, now that the country has a union unionization rate of what, 6%, seven? I don't know, it's, it's less than 10. Um, and so that, that sphere, that place of, of participation, of education, of communication uh, no longer exists. And what have we seen over the same time period that unions have been obliterated? Well, we've seen the left has been obliterated, not just the Democratic Party, which has lost power electorally, but the Democratic Party itself has abandoned its old constituency, which was labor uh, during the sort of FDR and then Truman uh, and Kennedy and LBJ years when labor was organized and relatively powerful, not as powerful as I I wish they would. Uh, or I wish they could be, but they were much stronger than they are today. And so what I think must be done before we're able to win electorally is we have to organize ourselves non-electorally first. But it's chicken and egg. So how does that work? And actually, before you... All right. So that's my question. Remember remember where mm-hmm. you want to go with that. I want to bring up just a, a very quick aside mm-hmm. before we continue, which is you're... How old are you, if I may? Uh, 23. 23. So you are the millennial generation. Yeah, or so even you, sort of the, the top edge of the Gen Zers. Right, right. Okay, so I just I, that's an important perspective of like, mm-hmm. this is what it's going to be like going forward from the person, you know, within that generation. Right. Um, so what was the question that I just asked? Yeah, you said <laughs> it's, it's chicken and egg, right? Like, how do you it's chicken and egg, right? Do non-electoral how, um, organization before you get electoral victories? to make it easier to unionize, for example, right? Like we have a lot of laws on the books that make it really hard for workers to organize uh, and form unions. Um, and of course, the government is entirely controlled by capital. I mean, that's that couldn't be more obvious, uh, you know, possibly even then in the age of, of the, the Gilded Age with the robber barons and all that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, uh, which one comes first? Well, I think the answer has to be non-electoral organization must come first. Um, because again, you have to look at what, what we did with Bernie, right? We advanced a, the, the first, essentially the first pro-labor candidate in, the, um, in a presidential election uh, to have a legitimate shot at winning one of the major parties' candidacies basically since, what, LBJ? Um, probably. Uh, you know, and so, um, you know, what does that say? Well, that says, you know, we lost, we couldn't get that done, even with all the things that I mentioned earlier, the most donors of any candidate in history, the most volunteers of any candidate in history, 
the most money of any candidate in this race. Uh, universal name recognition, extremely popular policy platform. All of that was irrelevant when it came down to, to vote. And it's because, in my view, and, and this should be um, pretty uh, palatable for an MFT person, is that voters are basically brainwashed. And I know that's a strong word to use, but it, it is the, the word that correctly describes my sentiment, which is that voters believe things that are, are not good. And not only are they not good, but they actively harm the very people believing them. Uh, this is very obvious from an, from an MMT perspective when you see people believing that a government that prints its own money is somehow out of money, which is literally impossible and should be obvious to uh, you know, anyone upon just three seconds of, of you know, introspection. Um, there was there was a tweet just there was yeah. a tweet just a, a couple of days ago about coronavirus of of someone saying something to the effect of you know we have to be careful about our deficit but but the government really <laughs> right. needs to do more and, and Stephanie Kelton responded no we need to spend 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 right, spend right. whatever it takes the, you know you're you're saying that a current spending in, influences our you know uh, restricts our future spending is nonsense do what right. needs to be done yeah go ahead. yeah and that's a great example of the exact phenomena that I'm trying to describe, which is that everyone believes things that are bad and harmful. And the only way that you can get people to stop to, to, to stop believing those things is to re-educate them. And the only way that you can re-educate people, I think, is through building alternative institutions than exist uh, to the current ones, because the current ones do not have the goal of properly educating the public. Okay, it is not the New York Times's purpose to educate the ordinary person uh, in ways in which they can improve their lives. That's not the goal of the New York Times. The New York Times exists to make money for its shareholders. That's the goal. It's a for-profit entity. Uh, the same is true about every, every cable the, the, news network. The, the, the government and those who are behind it and the and New York Times and all the cable news networks, they do not educate mm -hmm. you to stand up no. against the government. And they no, also actively crush- counter their interests. And they also actively crush those entities that do try and do that. Like I, I I'm halfway sure. through, I'm halfway through Fred Lee's history of heterodox economics, mm -hmm. which is not economics. It's about the history of discrimination that neoclassical mm -hmm. has done against heterodox people. And it is all about how, you know, libraries for neoclassical, they're all spank, you know, sparkly and you know, squeaky. Oh, exactly. Clean. Yeah. And education for heterodox is with, you know, they have to go to the Xerox machine and make copies. They have to mm -hmm. meet in secret. They have they're not allowed to use state uh, rooms. You know, sure. so so you know, this this influences like being able to create these being able to create these new uh, entities or whatever the term is that you were just saying. Yeah, institutions, you know, that, organizations. Right. We have to we have to consider that like it's going right. to be discriminated against because yeah because the ones that currently exist are hostile toward our project and our project is not a vain one it's not one that we do because it's easy or it's not one that we do because it's financially rewarding it's one that we do because we want to literally save the world i mean with climate change that is not an exaggeration it is either a green new deal or enormous unprecedented levels of human suffering um and and potentially potentially the the extinguishment of humankind entirely and so at least the, we say organized at least the organized yeah. species for sure and you are the generation especially mm -hmm. that's going to be you know dealing with the consequence of this and this election is really to a significant extent at least is the older generation basically giving your generation the finger yeah, I mean, I think that that's an inescapable um, conclusion to reach when you look at exit poll data, when you look at um, the actual, you know, uh, what people, what voters say is their is their candidate preference. I think Bernie in Michigan, which was kind of perceived, I think accurately as our last sort of chance, uh, you you see that the under twenty nines, the eighteen to twenty nines voted for him at like at a rate of 81 to 83%. And then yeah. the, the boomers were virtually the flip of that um, with Joe Biden. They, they voted overwhelmingly in favor of Joe Biden. 
uh, a candidate, by the way, who, who has built a career on trying to cut the very programs that those boomers rely upon, right? Medicare, Social Security. And so again, yeah. that gets back to my point where people believe in these self-destructive and extremely harmful ideas, you know, the whole we're out of money and all that, but, but it's much more profound. It's not limited to MMT. People believe wrong stuff about everything. People believe wrong stuff about the coronavirus. They say, oh, it's just the flu. You know, it's, uh, it's fine. Uh, well, it'll, it'll, it'll go away when the weather gets warmer, right? That's a, that's a common refrain you're hearing. Smart people, educated people. It's totally wrong. That's kind of irrelevant, though, because they, they don't really care, right? And so you have this systemic lack of information, or not even lack of information. You have a systemically disinformed population deliberately disinformed by, again, the same institutions I was referencing earlier, the media, governments, uh, large large businesses that sort of own the, the corporate media. And so, yes, the only alternative that I perceive to, that could possibly fix this, help us out of this, is through a conscious, long-term oriented project of building out alternative institutions for us to act for, for us to be able to exercise power because we can't get power in the ones that exist now i think they would rather honestly destroy themselves and the democratic party is a good example of this than let us take them over i mean look the, the the democrats just put forward or they they are very likely going to put forward a 77 year old who whose brain as you described earlier is turning into oatmeal who has a long history of, of extremely unpopular policies, who has a long history of, of um, uh, sexual misconduct allegations, just like Trump, uh, up against Trump, and their claim is, this is the guy that they're gonna, this is the guy who's gonna beat him. How absurd is that? Well, that's because that they're lying. They don't actually think that. They only- And they probably, and, and uh, older voters probably also think that he's going to support Medicare for all, that he's not right. gonna cut Social yeah. Security. Right. Yeah. You, you try to tell somebody, you know, about his history, they'll just deny it. You, you show them the, the video of him on the Senate floor bragging about trying to cut it. They don't care. You know, and so you, you have this systemic problem uh, that I perceive to be the only way out of is is creating our own institutions that can allow us to educate each other, to organize with each other, to mobilize each other uh, for 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 purposes of, of gathering power eventually through electoral politics. But it's not going to happen in 2020. It's probably not going to happen 2024. Uh, you know, and so we have to begin building this now. And, and let me add one more point on this. The right wing used to do this as well. They don't have to anymore because they own everything. But there was a time when they didn't own all the institutions, when, when neoliberal dogma wasn't so utterly pervasive and, and totally controlled the entire public consciousness. You know, it, it, the entire public didn't used to be brainwashed into voting against their own interests on every single issue that you can possibly imagine. They did what I'm describing here. They set out and went and embarked on a coordinated strategy. Of course, they had more funding because their interests align with business and ours don't. Uh, but, but this was a long-term political project on their part because they knew that they were locked out of electoral politics at one point. Ronald Reagan, when he first ran for president, was utterly obliterated. He was crushed in his own, in his own party's primary. Did that, did that stop the GOP from, and the radical right from believing in the, 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 their, their uh, project and, and continuing to organize, continuing to build power outside of the electoral domain so that one day when the, when the timer's right, they could seize it? No. We, we must do the same thing. You know, I, I, I see. Okay, so I spoke to Isha uh, in uh, a couple episodes ago on Historically, and mm -hmm. it's it's called The First Act of Revolution is, is Love. And what it means mm -hmm. is just simply we need to start connecting with each other to inform right. each other of the truth, basically. Yeah, pretty much. We need to start connecting. We need to start sharing the truth with one another. We need to... to Basically, you know, in a way, which is the beginning of of becoming these new institutions of, you know, stop mm -hmm. listening to the news sure. and start listening to each other. And, and the idea is to go to an 
I mean, everybody, but but especially those more disadvantaged than you who are not interested yeah, in protecting right. their own privilege because they don't have privilege. Sure. And and you know, an, an example that he should gives is just let me bring over dinner. Mm -hmm. Let's talk. You know, and it's I mean, it's it's really that it is repairing the fabric of society at the molecular level because mm -hmm. neoliberalism has put us to sleep where we our job is to make their stuff and buy their stuff and to vote and then go home. Yeah, and and, and, and to rest to until vote for a candidate of of one of two parties, both of which they own and control entirely. Right. There's I mean to to, to vote just as as a, a blind gesture, not to really vote, just to sure. go through the motion of pretending that we have a democracy. And right. but but the point is is to is to vote and then go home and sleep until you're ready to vote again and just go back to making your machines and making mm -hmm. buying buying making their stuff and buying their stuff. If Bernie could win, if we could make Bernie win through revolution, through fall, through the rules, which is unlikely, but they the the rich would start to be attacked as if by nanobots, mm -hmm. as if tiny little robots would go into their pores and just starting eating them from the inside and there would absolutely be no way to stop it. That's, that's how it would happen. The job guarantee, the job guarantee would put, you know, the power into the hands of people and it just society would change at such a deep level that they would not be able to stop it. And what I'm realizing now by listening to you is that we don't realize that we have been, we are, right now being eaten by these neoliberal nanopods oh, without question. to such a sec a, such a molecular level of our education and our media and our entertainment and our entire lives has sure. been hearing these inaccurate things in all angles and all you know styles and you know comedy and whatever mm -hmm. that i i i had a, a bigger point which i'm forgetting at the moment but but <laughs> I just I didn't realize that that this is sort of I think I think yeah I think that it's going to incorporate you know you have a, a specific goal of creating specific institutions and I I'm more towards you know more attacking the the political system so that we can start changing those rules and I think I think there's I think the point is that there has to be a marriage of these two things that you sort of have to do the same you sort yeah. of have to do both at the same time to hopefully right. you know. I think that's right. I mean I, I would say I would say that this is my view. In the long term, it's as I've already described, it's building other uh, institutions for us to educate and organize ourselves and uh, to to build power outside of the electoral domain. Um, and then in the short term though, that doesn't mean that you just entirely abandon electoral politics uh, because we can still get victories that still improve the world. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory is an obvious example of what I'm talking about. So if we can't win a presidential election, um, which maybe we can't, maybe that's just genuinely an impossibility right now, uh, that doesn't mean that we can't win House elections. That doesn't mean that we can't primary, you know, idiots like Dianne Feinstein, who, who somehow is represents the, the most liberal state in the country with an incredibly diverse and, and young uh, population, and then uh, who, who basically spits in the Sunrise Movement's face. I mean, that's an absurdity. How can Feinstein be the senator from, from California? It's totally insane. And so, you know, there are obvious ways in which we can exercise power in, in politics today. It's just not, we will, we probably, it, it's almost certainly impossible that we'll ever achieve any kind of majority necessary to just ram through our uh, our agenda against the the wishes of our opponents that at that there's no way we're gonna be able to do that absent the kind of long-term building that i'm talking about i i would agree with that i would just say we there's no way it's going to happen with conforming to these official rules yeah exactly and, and the rules are we're living it designed to prevent us from being able to do what we're talking about Correct. They are. That's correct. But in addition, they don't have to follow their own rules. Well, so yeah, they don't, not, they don't care. It's, this is double. This is double. You know, this is double. We have to follow those rules and we can't win following those rules, but they don't have to follow those rules by, you know, they certified Iowa results, even though there's obvious, even though they've, they acknowledge that there's still mistakes uh -huh. remaining and missing things remaining because they just don't have the time. They had plenty of time to mess it up. 
but they don't have the time to fix those mistakes. And so they just certified it, you know, so right. they don't have to follow their own rule. So uh, another point of, of my talk with Isha is that there is, there are official rules and there's true justice. Yeah, of course. And always been the case. We, it's yeah, and it's time for some justice. It's time for some right. justice because the official right, you go rules back to are slavery, not and that was that was totally legal. Was it just? Of course not. Go to the Holocaust. It was illegal to be Jewish. Was that justice? Of course not. So yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a recurring theme that I don't. I think we've basically always seen. Um, and and yeah, I think that our project is is essentially a reconciling of both. It's turning what is true justice into the rules. Um, and, and and maybe mm, interesting agree with that. I haven't listened to her to the the episode you did with her, um, but I, that's kind of the way I perceive the the sort of the the long arc of history that MLK described, which is that we we over time have brought rules more in line with justice. Right, outlawing slavery was one of those moves. Outlawing Jim Crow was another one. Um, we still have a very long way to go. Uh, and you could you could argue, I think, correctly that it's it's gotten worse in a lot of respects. That the, the those two have moved farther apart since, say, 1965. Um, but you know, I, that's kind of the way I I see the interaction of those two those two ideas. Okay, uh, so so what are some uh, more specific examples beyond unions? Yeah, um, so I think that what you need to do is is organize people along the the kind of um class uh identifiers that they share and so obviously for a union you know you're, you're talking about people who work at the same company um you know uh or, or possibly work in the same type of industry like the, the same sector so you're organizing uh all um uh uber lyft etc drivers uh okay. but the, another way that you could look at it is is organizing people along uh, their relationships in other uh, legal um, sort of uh, relations. So tenants can be uh, sort of connected on their class, um, on their class identifier vis-a-vis -vis landlords. And so what you're really, what really what we're trying to get out of here is a, a bringing forth of the, of the concept that there are power imbalances existing in our relationships all the time uh, between landlord and tenant, between uh, employer and employee. And the goal, I think, of the left uh, should be to bring those contradictions into focus so that people understand how their lives are structured, why they're structured the way that they are structured, and then what to do about that structure if they think it's unjust. And I think that most people will probably say, yeah, you know what? My boss doesn't have any right to have this kind of power over me that, that he does. Uh, my landlord doesn't have the right to have this kind of authority over my life that he does. And once you've done that, you've already started winning the battle. I mean, because right now, uh, this is just basically what we're talking about is class consciousness. Right now, there is virtually none. Um, people didn't even, I, I had a Facebook post today talking about how if the legacy of Bernie is simply bringing the idea of class back into mainstream politics, then it will be a, there will have been a successful legacy. Um, because people don't even think this way, not on the scale that we need at least, uh, at all. You know, it, it's not even remotely, it's not a thought that even enters their minds. And so that's the way that I sort of am approaching this idea. Well, he, he woke me entirely. I mean, mm -hmm. I was in political sleep for my entire life up until sure. him. So, you know, and and then and that is what resulted in me learning MMT. You knew MMT, I believe. I'm guessing that you knew MMT basically before. concurrent with Bernie's first run. I learned about MMT the fall of 2015. As a result of Bernie? No, actually, it, it was not um, directly connected to the Bernie campaign. It was uh, it was tangentially related, but but no, I wouldn't say so. Well, so how did? explain it, it briefly was, because it for, for, for me for for okay so for for me he woke me up and then that let that you know he he teaches bernie taught me what the problem is which is money in politics and inequality and then the solution to that problem which is 
from his point of view, which is a 21st century bill of rights from MMT would be a job guarantee, mm -hmm. which, you know, and, but, but, but my questioning, okay, so why don't we have these things is what led okay. me to MMT two years. Yeah, after that. I, I think that's not exactly wrong for, to say for myself, but I've always thought that something was profoundly wrong with basically human society. I mean, I grew up at a time when it was illegal for uh, gay people to get married. Um, that was that was a very formative issue in my life. The same way that I imagine a lot of young people who grew up in nineteen in the nineteen fifties who thought it was absurd that that black people couldn't marry white people or that black people couldn't vote all the things that they couldn't do. Hmm. Um, and so I, I I had this idea from a very early age, maybe twelve years old, when I started kind of wondering, hey, mom, why is all this so bad? Why do these crazy people believe these crazy things about, you know, if you're gay, you somehow don't have the right to get married? I thought that was just a, a totally absurd idea. Um, and so for me, the idea that something was broken here has, has existed in, in my brain and in my person for my entire adult life. Uh, MMT for me was was sort of a very good explanation of only one thing that has been broken for forever, sort of the, uh, the economic side of the, of things rather than the social. Um, but, but what, what really led me, uh, to a, a comprehensive worldview that describes how everything is broken. Um, sort of, a, I guess you could kind of call it a theory of everything, although you, you want to be wary of, of those kinds of, um, ideas. But it was just the, and I, I'm not a great scholar in this topic, but I think I understand enough at a, at a decently um, sophisticated level that I can make this claim. It, it's that when I started reading actual socialist writing from people like Marx and, and others, I started to see that, okay, what's really going on with all of this, with racism, with prejudice against, against LGBT, uh, Q people, uh, against um, uh, the Jews and the Holocaust is is power. So that's the core of the issue. And then you see that that Marx and and, and um, socialist uh, thinkers generally identify that the the uh, the primary um, power imbalance between human beings is because of the capitalist mode of production. Now I'm like, oh, okay, wow, okay. Now I can see clearly. It's sort of like it was like a second NMT, whereas NMT kind of opens your, opens your eyes to all the lies you've been told about we can't afford it and all that kind of stuff. It was sort of like that feeling for me all over again, except on an even broader scale. It was it was a, it was a worldwide, a society wide NMT rather than just a sort of finance NMT. So okay, so that's basically an, an inequality to a grand scale, and and which is uh, yeah, inequality labor. And Particularly defined as yeah right exactly the, the the class relations under capitalism necessarily lead to um, power imbalances which which necessarily or or very likely lead to uh, gross abuses of 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 you know of people and oppression and injustice. Right and 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 this this is a little bit out of the blue but but capital requires more and more workers and more and more customers, which is a significant part of why we are in the problem that we are in. That yeah, we're, I mean, we're overpopulated and, and that the only thing that is allowing us to be overpopulated is fossil fuels. Right. I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that um, because I think that all the most of the times in history, people have said, oh, there's too many people. Well, they've been wrong. Like you go back to Malthus when he was talking about how there's not going to be enough, um, you know, uh, crops to feed everyone. We haven't seen that, and I and I think that we still don't see that because we still have a, a world where we can produce far and away more food than is required to actually feed every human. The that now that's changing because of climate change. That that might not be true one day in the relatively near future if the you know the plains of the world dry up and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at least presently, it still is correct to say that there is. More, way more than enough to make sure that everyone has what they need. But the problem is that okay. you, you, ha you do not have an economic system which allocates resources 
along Fairly, the yeah line. sure uh, I, I don't want to go farther into this but i do i do think that fossil fuels yeah. is a huge part of the reason of why we can make as much food as that we can make well, I, I don't necessarily um, think that it's wrong either um okay so i want to get i want to talk to You can find RecTech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. Thank you for listening to the show. See you next time on Historically.